0: Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Well, towards the end of Philippians chapter 1, Paul moves on to talk about how we are to be living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he carries that theme on now. And and today's topic is actually about completing the pastor's joy. Now, that all sounds a bit self-serving, doesn't it? So what do you think the message could be about? If we're thinking about completing the pastor's joy, do you think it's going to be put, put a bit more money in the offering box? Well, well, there's no offering box happening during the COVID thing. Um, maybe it's give the pastor a pay rise or, or renovate the manse. Well, we don't have a manse. Uh, it wasn't that for Paul. He was in jail. Um, Maybe it's start using the gifts that you have to take a bit of a load off the pastor or here's a good one. Fill the church so that it becomes the biggest and most vibrant church in town. That's sure to increase the joy of the pastor. Um, Oh, I know. I like listening to Vision Radio and there's a few preachers on there who I don't mind listening to. And something I've noticed is is sometimes, actually quite often, they'll say something and their congregation all start giving applause at something that the pastor said. I've noticed you lot never, never do that. You never clap me. Oh, even when I think it's a really good sermon, I still don't get a clap. Maybe, maybe that's how you can complete the pastor's joy. I don't think so. What's Paul talking about here? What is Paul looking for in this church in Philippi and what's he praying for? The thing that would complete Paul's joy is unity in the church. And so the message today, no, it's not about me. It's about us. And as we progress, we're actually going to realise it's about Jesus Christ. And while the message is about unity, I can tell you what, for me as a pastor and for me as a Bible teacher, what gives me an enormous amount of joy is to see the Spirit of God at work in the hearts and the lives of those who hear these messages, and it's to see that our church be becoming more and more like Christ, and it's to see the Spirit moving in us to have the same mind and the same love and to be in full accord with this one mind given to us by Jesus Christ. So unity in the church, we, we know it's important. I don't think many churches would argue, many pastors would argue, many people would argue that unity in the church is really important. We, we know just how dysfunctional the church can be without unity. Um, some people quote Jesus um. He wasn't actually talking about Christian unity at the time. He was talking about the spiritual battle of all things. But, but some people quote Jesus when he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand, and they apply it to Christian unity. Well, that, that's not how Jesus was using it, but, yeah, that's a good analogy that you can you could use if you like. But it's not only in the Christian church that we seek unity. We, we, we look for unity unity in all sorts of places. I found it really interesting over the last few months to observe our federation at work, as our Prime Minister likes to put it. Uh, The challenge for Australia uh, during this COVID pandemic has been we're a federation of states. All right. So the federal government's responsible for some stuff. The states are responsible for other things. And and when it comes to dealing with the pandemic, some things are necessarily dealt with at a state level. Other things are necessarily dealt with at a federal level. So states are responsible for, for health and, and most um, law enforcement and a fair bit of the industrial relations stuff is all handled by the states. Um, but then the federal government are responsible for the um, enforcement of the borders and for border policy to begin with and well they're they're the ones who who hold the purse strings like that the taxation that's a responsibility of the federal government and all of this dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic is really expensive and so to deal with the current COVID-19 crisis they've come up with this thing that they call the COVID national cabinet uh, where the states and the territories all meet together with the Prime Minister to try and come up with a unified national approach. And at the end of the me- each meeting, the Prime Minister would emerge as the spokesperson, and he'd give the message, we're all unified on this, right? We've I've met with the premiers and, and the chief health officers, and, and this is what we're going to do. Now, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall and been able to see a bit, bit behind the scenes of those closed doors at the possibility of what threats and cajoling was done to try and get each of the states to toe the line. And even so, sometimes I could tell that the Prime Minister was announcing something that he didn't really agree with, but as a spokesperson, he had to stand by it. But we heard how great all of the states had been working together, but even so, it didn't take long for them to break ranks, did it? And so the National Cabinet decides that, that the schools will remain open. Uh, you must send your kids to schools because it's the safest place for them to be. Um, but then a day or two later, Victoria closes its schools. And then a week or so later, Queensland closes their schools. And some states close their borders And what does our premier say about the the closure of our borders? Oh, I've got to do what's right for Queensland. See, there wasn't national unity at all. But Paul describes true unity. Paul describes godly unity. The same mind, the same love in full accord, one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. That's godly unity. And yet the way that that, that many try to seek to bring unity into the church, well, it's done in man's way rather than God's way. Probably the, the most common method of trying to get unity in a church is for the pastor to try to re-educate the congregation. It's to try and line up their way of thinking with his way of thinking or to try and preach unity into the church where we have a whole series of messages around leadership and unity and the church get taught that unity is really important and often we'll trot out that Old Testament verse that says, um, you know, where brothers uh, are united, then God commands a blessing and they'll say, you want to be blessed, don't you? And so we've got to be united and and they'll say that, okay, we'll be a unified church when the pastor and the elders cast the vision and the rest of the church get on board and follow them. And if anybody in the church disagrees with the direction, well, you've just got to put aside your concerns because we're the leaders, you're the followers, and, and unity is much more important than what you think. But you know what? To me, that pretty much reeks of being like the political national cabinet sort of unity it's an illusion. It's an illusion of unity. It's a dog's breakfast. It's, it's, it's pretend. It's not unity at all. Uh, I've, I've been in the midst of this in the past. Uh, the denomination that I was a part of, it, it used to try and contrive unity. And one of its pet sayings was, unity and diversity. It would quote that. And um, now, the thing is, in, in the scriptures, it actually does talk about unity and diversity. We, we have a diversity of spiritual gifts. God gives each of us different spiritual gifts, and we shouldn't all expect to have the same spiritual gifts. And as we each use the spiritual gifts that God has given us, we form one united body, unity and diversity. Uh, but the church that I was in used to use that, use that catch cry, but they didn't apply it all in that way. They they used to say, okay, this is a diversity of belief. You can believe what you want to believe and we'll believe what we want to believe and so we'll all believe different stuff but we'll be united as we believe different stuff. And it was a nonsense. It was pretend, it was contrived. It was an illusion of unity at best. Uh, It was nothing more than a poor counterfeit. In fact... That's pretty much the opposite of godly unity. Godly unity is never found in diversity of belief. Unity is found in sameness, the same mind, the same love, in full accord, one mind, sameness. Righto, so forget about human designs of unity. Here's God's recipe For unity in the church. Firstly, being of the same mind. Now that means being like minded, it means believing the same stuff. He's talking about truth, right? Having a unified belief in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that that, that's why a whole lot of the New Testament rails against false teaching. Because I'll tell you what, there's very little that's going to destroy unity in the church quicker than, than, than when a bit of false teaching comes into the church. And when some members are convinced by that false teaching, it just destroys unity in that church because we're no longer unified in the belief of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first ingredient in the recipe of unity is being of the same mind. Uh, When Robin and I go away on holidays, uh, we always love to visit a local church in the area in which we're staying. Now, of course, we want to find a good one. Um, And what I consider a good church might be very different to what some other people consider to be a good church. So for some people might look for something with a a really professional sort of a feel to it and whatnot. I don't care about that. What I'm looking for is, what do you believe? What do you teach? I want to see that I'm going to be meeting with the people who are who are united with me in what we believe, so that we are of one mind. And I tell you what, the, the joy that we experience uh, when we meet a new group of people and we turn up to their church and and we might have never met them before, but as we settle down to, to worship Jesus together and as we hear the word of God being taught and preached we realise that, hey, we're amongst people here who are of the same mind. And it goes on from there. Almost without exception, when the word that has been taught during the service is the gospel truth and we realise, hey, we're on the same page here, we are of the same mind, almost without exception, that carries over into fellowship. So as the service winds up, and then as we get together as the people of God and we meet these new people that we've never met before, almost without exception, we we just instantly know that we're a part of these people, even though we've never met them before. I love it. I love it. And, And when I'm with people who are of the same mind, it just makes me want to love Jesus even more. The second ingredient is having the same love. That means being a, a church who love Jesus and being a church who love each other. Now, I've encountered some churches in the time who pride themselves on being theologically correct and, and they guard the truth for all that it's worth and and, and they all believe exactly the same thing. And yet... They have been some of the most loveless people that I've ever come across. But Paul says in in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, without love we're nothing. And this is Paul's desire for this church, for them to be a church who are filled with love for each other. Because unless we love each other, there's never going to be unity. The third ingredient, being in full accord. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses here, I don't know if I should try and pronounce it, I, I have difficulty with this one, Synthsychoi, something like that. Uh, it, it literally means one-souled, harmonious. Sounds a little bit like symphony, doesn't he? Synthsikoi. Um one-souled, harmonious, united in spirit. And why wouldn't we be united in spirit? If as disciples of Jesus, we are filled with the same Holy Spirit, if we have been born again and we all have the same Heavenly Father, and if we're being led by the same Spirit and we are following that same Holy Spirit, then shouldn't we be in full accord with one another? And so the way I'm thinking about this, it's only when self starts getting in the way that we're not of one accord, of one soul. And then there's the fourth ingredient, being of one mind. Now, that sounds very similar to the first ingredient. Uh, The first ingredient he listed was being like-minded, and now this one is being of the one mind. Uh, Is there a difference? Well, actually, yes, there is. In the first case, uh, he was talking about being like-minded, right? It's about having a common belief, uh, the common faith that we have. And in this case... He's talking more about purpose. And as we read on, we're going to realise what this common purpose is. The common purpose of a unified church is for us to be gospel-orientated in the way that we relate to each other. Now, we we live in an age of corporate planning, strategic plans. Uh, We can make it sound religious by calling it mission planning and in many churches uh, the worldly corporate model gets brought into the church to try and define and to try and manage what our common purpose is all right so we we want to set our goals and set our objectives so so the common so the mindset is you know we have to be a people on the way somewhere and we need to know where that somewhere is that we're going otherwise we're all going to be pulling in different directions and so we've got to manage this somehow this is the corporate way of thinking which churches embrace um and so what they do is is they come up okay we're going to have our workshops and we're going to work with everybody and and then we're going to crunch all of the information together and we're going to put it all together and with a bit of brainstorming and ta-da here's our 3 year plan. And this is going to be our common purpose for the next three years, folks. But Paul didn't seem to go in for that. The common purpose that Paul is looking for in the Philippian church is a very simple one. It's for the church to be living the gospel and expressing the gospel to one another. He explains it in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see that there? That right there is the common purpose. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You know what? That could be almost be something that Jesus said. Jesus used to say stuff like that, didn't he? And... And when I think about the hundreds or the thousands or possibly even the millions of collective hours that Christian churches across the globe have spent on things like strategic plans and mission plans and and they spend all of this time trying to nail down and trying to state the purpose of their church, we've got to get our purpose lined up. But you see that? We don't need to jump through all of these hoops and corporatise it In such a way. There's the plan right there. There's our purpose right there. In verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than ourselves. And then verse 4 goes on, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's the fourth ingredient to unity. Being of one mind in purpose. The whole church, not only looking to their own interests, but looking to the interests of others. And if we were a church like that, wouldn't the world notice us, hey? Wow, look at those Christians. Look at the way they love each other. Now, you'd think that as Christians, we'd be all over this, eh? I mean, like loving one another and and, um, putting others first. That's supposed to be our core business, isn't it? Something like that. We should be all over this. And yet, why is the lack of unity in churches so common? And in some cases, it's downright ugly. Well, there, there could be lots of reasons for this, but I'm just going to list a few examples. In some cases there's disunity because the unity that we think that we have is counterfeit. As I said before, there cannot be unity when we all believe different stuff. When we don't agree on the fundamentals of the Gospels, there is a disconnect there that that, that makes true fellowship impossible. Now, I mean, it's okay for us to, to disagree on minor issues and we just the stuff that isn't clearly revealed in the scriptures and so we have our own ideas about the way things are. But on the big issues, on the fundamentals of the gospel, like who is Jesus Christ and, and believing that Jesus is the Son of God and, 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 and what we believe about sin and grace and judgment and salvation, these are the big issues. And it's really important that we should agree on these, otherwise there's never going to be unity. Secondly, disunity can happen when we follow men instead of following Jesus Christ. Um, Now, in cases like this, we try to create an image of unity because, all right, they're the leaders, we're the followers, and we just have to be united in following their vision. Um, Now, numerous times I've, I've talked about the consumer church Uh, whether church or you can, if you like, you can insert church leaders at this point, um, provide a product for me to consume. And if the church product that's being provided appeals to me, then I will stay and I'll consume that product. But if it's not really doing it for me, well, I might be just as likely to go and find another church that does provide a product that I do want to consume. Now, the thing is, Consumers of church largely have their own interests at heart. Back in the day, things were very different. Um, If if you're a Methodist, if you're born a Methodist, you would die a Methodist. Uh, If you're born a Baptist, you would die a Baptist. Back in the day, if you were born Church of England, what's that you say? There is no Church of England anymore. It's now called Anglican. I'll be Church, I'm always going to be Church of England, right? uh and i'll be buried church of england what's this anglican nonsense um that's the way it used to be uh for some people it's still the same um still today if you're born a presbyterian you're probably still a presbyterian um i hope nobody takes offense at that i'm just um continuing on a joke that i've got some good friends who are presbyterians and almost every one of them have uh, make a joke about oh we presbyterians we never change um which is a good thing in many ways. But today, for many people, things have changed. That's the way it used to be, not anymore. It's now become quite common to shift from church to church or even from denomination to denomination. Some do it quite regularly. Uh, in a small town like ours, it gets to the point where, oh, I've, I've been to each of the churches. I'm, I'm going to have to start on a second time around now. Now... Sometimes, and let me be really clear here sometimes um, a person shifts from one fellowship to another or from one denomination to another for a very good reason. What could a good reason possibly be for that? Well, I can think of a few, but probably the most obvious one is is doctrine. Uh, What is what we believe? What is being taught in the church? And if you are in a church and you now realize that what you're being taught is not biblical, well, that's a very good reason for you to leave that church. Or, if you've got some measure of authority in that church, maybe it's time for you to do a bit of work in reforming that church so that it does come around to a biblical perspective in what it teaches. Uh, but that's a good reason to leave a church um, and, and go to another church where the true gospel is being taught. But, I've got to say, that's, that's often in the minority. In many cases... Uh, where people move from one church to another, it, it's largely because they have their own interests at heart. They might look over the fence and go, oh, the grass is greener over the other side of the fence. And um, so they might notice, oh, that other church, they've got better music. Or they've got, they've got a coffee machine that's nice coffee over in that church. Or maybe they've got more comfy chairs. Or maybe, maybe they've got air conditioning. Or maybe they've got a, a really nice kids ministry. Um, I'll tell you what a common one is. That's where all the cool people are. That's where the... I'd love to be with those people. They're the cool people. I'll shift over there. But let me tell you, if we are a people who have our own interests at heart, we will most probably never be the unified people of God. Let me say that again. If we are a people who have our own interests at heart, we'll never be a unified people of God no matter what the church we go to, because we've got our own interests at heart and and we don't have the interests of of our brothers and sisters in Christ at our heart. And when we have our own interests at heart, this is a major destroyer of unity. And so if you are in your church, um, a unified approach would be to go, I've actually noticed something that's really lacking in this church. Now, if you notice that, and it's something which really needs to be in the church, and you think God is, God intends for it to be in that church, then maybe God might be speaking to you, and maybe God might be moving you to be the person who who starts bringing that into that church. Um, yeah, I don't think I need to give examples, uh, but but you get the idea. You see, the way of unity is we don't just expect the church to be a product for me to consume. It's about putting others first and it's about serving others and it's about loving others where I am. Which brings us to a third reason why disunity is so common in churches. Too often we tend to put ourselves first. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He's talking about self-seeking. He's talking about vain glory. And so it's good for us to consider what are my true motives? Why do I do what I do in the church? Um, do I do it to serve others or do I do it because by doing this I get some sense of achievement or I get some sense of accomplishment? Or, or for some people, they might actually like the attention of other people and, and in a way, we might admit this to ourselves, but when we actually think about it, we, we might actually be basking in the glory of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This, my friends, is the way of Jesus. Verse 5 tells us that this is the way of Jesus. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing. He's not just telling us, okay, this is what Jesus does. So you just follow his example. He's not telling us that. He's telling us something much more profound than this. He's saying that we already have this mind of Jesus. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? This is the mind of Jesus. And the mind of Jesus is already ours. Uh, We have been born again. We have put to death the old man and we've raised up the new. We have put off our old sinful self and we've become a new creation. As disciples of Jesus, we are in Christ Jesus. And because we are in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is transforming us. The Holy Spirit is renewing us such that we have the very mind of Christ. And when we as a church, when we as a body of Christ are in Christ Jesus and when we as a body of Christ have the mind of Christ, there's the unity right there. So let's see how deep this goes. As I read this, I was so humbled. Verse 6 says, Though he was in the form of God... He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is God God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe in in a triune God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Now, you'll have the Jehovah's Witnesses and they'll come and knock on your door and, and you'll say, oh, I already believe in Jesus. Thanks, it's all good. And then they'll start questioning, well, what do you believe? And and they'll invariably ask you the question, why do you believe in the Trinity? And you, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in that. And I'll say, you realize that's not in the Bible And and people who don't know their scriptures will go, no, of course it's in there. Well, no, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. They are quite correct. But the thing is, the word Trinity is just a word that we give to what the Bible describes Jesus is. And so there are some sects about the place, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, who try to tell us that uh, Jesus isn't God. They try to tell us that Jesus is some kind of angel. But here, it it, it just reveals that as a lie. Jesus Christ is God. Now, sometimes we deep thinkers amongst us, we might try and consider, well, okay, if Jesus is God, is God the Son subordinate to God the Father? Because there's things that Jesus said, look, I, I don't even know this, only the Father knows this. Does that mean that Jesus is subordinate? No, it does not. Um, it just means that each of the each of the persons of the Trinity... Um, have different roles to one another. Um, But in some ways, in some facets, Jesus became, um, he lost some of his godness. Let me be very clear, though. He didn't stop being God. He was just unable to do some of the things that he was able to do when he was in glory with his Father. Okay, because there are some heresies that say that Jesus ceased to be God. He didn't do that. But Jesus, he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And it does say that he emptied himself to become a form of a servant. Now, I find this amazing. Uh, We were created in God's image and yet Jesus was born in our likeness. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but I cannot think of another species whose young are more helpless or more dependent for as long as what a human child is. A human child, a human baby, would have to be the most helpless of young. And the Lord God Almighty, God the Son, became the most helpless bundle of gurgling, squirming flesh. Now, I I don't want to be crass here, but I I want to make this real for you. The Lord of heaven and earth lowered himself. He emptied himself such that he couldn't even control his own bowels. That's what it means for Jesus to have become a human baby. The Holy One would dirty his pants and be in his own excrement until his mum noticed and came to change him. Have you ever thought of of how humbling that would be for the holy God? And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did this for us. Because of our sins, we deserve death. But Jesus humbled himself and he died to save us because of our sins we deserve to go to hell but God had mercy on us and his son stepped down from heaven so that he could save us and he could take us to be with him in glory now, hang on a minute didn't Jesus lose his glory when, when he stepped down from heaven well only temporarily When we get to verse 9, we catch a glimpse of of what is now and and what will be, right? So Jesus started in heaven as God. He lowered himself to earth to become a humble servant and he died. But of course, he he was raised from the dead. But where is Jesus now? What is his status now? Well, verse 9, Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, my friends, is the truth. This is who Jesus is right now. Jesus is highly exalted. Right now, the name of Jesus is above every other name. For what purpose? Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are seeing here a combination of what is and what will be. At the moment, it's, it's the minority who bow their knees before Jesus. Do you? Do you bow your knee before Jesus? At the moment, there's very few tongues who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does your tongue confess that? At the moment, it's the minority, but that's all going to change. On the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, on that day, the proud and the arrogant and the faithless will not be able to stand in their arrogance before the Lord God Almighty. They will cringe and they will fall in fear on the day of judgment that, that, that has come. But sadly, for them, that's going to be too late. You see, this is the gospel. To become a disciple of Jesus, we yield to Jesus now. We bow our knee before Jesus now. And we confess before the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do this to the glory of God the Father. We do this now. How how could we ever seek our own petty glory when we owe everything to Jesus? How could we ever be self-seeking when we worship the one who gave up everything for us and who is now exalted to the highest of highs? How could we be self-seeking before our Lord? How could we ever put ourselves first when Jesus gave up so much for us, when he lowered himself in such an amazing way He did it for us and he lowered himself for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Wouldn't we do the same? Wouldn't we do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, that's what's being described here. Christ-likeness. Last week in Todd's message, he was talking about us maturing in Christ. And I think he said something along the lines of, if you're not becoming more like Christ, then you're not maturing. Not his exact words, but something along that line. And for unity in the church, we have to be all maturing in Christ. When a whole church is maturing in Christ, when each member is becoming more and more like Jesus, there's the unity. You see, if I'm becoming like Jesus and you're becoming like Jesus, we're going to get on pretty well together, aren't we? (laughs) And if I've got the mind of Christ and you've got the mind of Christ, we're going to be thinking pretty much the same, aren't we? I think a large part of the disunity that we find in the church today results from the beginnings. It results from a dodgy self-centered version of the gospel but today i want you i want you to hear the christ-centered gospel that is the true gospel we have all sinned we all fall short of the glory of god and because of our rejection of god and because of our sin and because of our self-centeredness we deserve death without jesus i deserve death without jesus you deserve death that's the punishment for sin And we are incapable of saving ourselves. We like to think that if we... It's like a balance sheet. If I can do a few good things, then it might balance up the few bad things that I've done. But the problem is, there is no balance sheet. Is there anything on the bad side? You've lost out. There is no balancing of the books. The only one who can balance the books is Jesus Christ. And he died to pay the penalty of our sins even so we have a part to play in this not everybody automatically gets forgiveness yes Jesus died for the sins of the world does that mean the whole world is saved no those who are forgiven are those who are in the minority it's those who bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and we do this to the glory of God we repent of sin. We recognise that our old way of life is incompatible with the renewed life of following Jesus. And so we repent of sin. We repent of our wrong attitude toward God. We repent of those horrible things that we've done in the past. We've repent of all of our selfishness. And we bow our knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um you know, self centered versions of the gospel tend to omit this part. They, they forget to tell you, oh, by the way, Jesus is Lord, and, and um, all of your allegiance now belongs to Him, and, and your whole life is going to change. We bow our knee before Him, and we confess that He's Lord. And for Jesus to be Lord, it, it's much more than just a matter of words. It's a change of the heart. Is Jesus merely Lord by word? No. He needs to be Lord by what happens in my heart. And that gets expressed in in the way that I live and the actions that I do. See, Jesus isn't just any Lord. He, He is my Lord. He is your Lord. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He's the boss. That's what it means. This is an image of total submission. We submit ourselves totally to Jesus. And of course, when we submit ourselves totally to Jesus, we're not going to be lording it over one another, are we? Let's pray. And... um, as we pray, if you're not sure that you've actually totally given yourself to Jesus, and you might be thinking now, actually, I might have, I might have only embraced a bit of a self-centered version of the gospel. Well, I want to say to you now, now is the time. Jesus is the one before whom we we must bow our knee and proclaim as Lord in word and deed. And I'd want to invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you were willing to empty yourself and and to become a servant and to be humbled in such a way and and to even die on a cross. But Lord, we now recognise that You are no longer lowly. You are now highly exalted. Your name is greater than any other name. Oh Lord, I recognize my need of a Savior. I repent of all my sin. I repent of all of my selfishness. I repent of all of my rejection of You. Lord, I am so sorry that I haven't held your name as highly as I should. God, forgive me. And Lord, I want to thank you for your grace and I want to thank you for your forgiveness and for the new life that you give to us. Lord, I submit to you. You are my Lord. You are my master. You're my boss. Change me, change us, Lord, we pray. We don't want to remain the same any longer. Help us to live in unity. Change our hearts so that we would be a people of humility, that we would be a people who look out for the interests of others rather than for ourselves. Oh, Lord, we pray that today would be a new day, a new beginning, where my life is surrendered to you in totality for the glory of God. Amen.